0: Moving on, we will start with the
1: first video for the panel Youth and Work.
2: To not think about uh, not having money to carry on with life, just be happy with your family.
3: Career success to me would be my proficiency as a radiographer. I think it's very heartwarming when patients thank us when they leave the room. So like some of the patients would be like, thank you Missy or thank you Doctor.
4: I think success in a job is one where you feel like the skill set that you bring that's unique the knowledge and experience that you bring to the table is being effectively tapped on such that you don't feel like it's just a job to put food on the table, but also one where it gives meaning to your life.
1: When I was younger, I think I wanted to climb up the corporate ladder, but I think now, as a working mom, it's more important that I have a job that I can do on a daily basis that gives me some sort of a work-life balance something that aligns to my values and one that allows me to, you know, grow, right? I think is
5: work-life balance. And I know a lot of people will be like, okay, work-life balance, this girl's probably like a bit like lazy or whatever, but I feel like, yes, while I'm working, I'm able to give my 100%, but I think youth these days also want to have that balance in work. We also want to have the after work hours to ourselves to so recharge and be ready for the next day.
6: Career success for me would look like one that aligns passion, purpose with also pay. In Singapore, I think the reality is that we do need a certain amount of salary to survive to do tours in a neighbourhood that I've lived all my life in Gala. That also enabled me to explore financially how it could be sustainable and also how it could have functions to give back to the place and the community that I live in.
3: I didn't want a job that was desk-bound. I wanted to move around more and I wanted a profession where my knowledge could be beneficial for the people around me.
7: I would
4: say it's not a calculated series of steps that I've taken, it was simply a process of elimination. There were also practical considerations, so truth be told, if a job that I'm applying for meant that I had to climb a flight of stairs every day, there were no lifts or no wheelchair accessible toilets, then simply those were out of the question.
1: I honestly didn't really know what to do, and I think, by the way, that's fine. Looking back, I really wanted to do something that placed my strengths. And one thing that I really enjoyed was interacting with people. So I decided to go into sales when I had my kids. I think it really shaped what I consider to be important. That's why, to me, work-life balance is really key. I think one important consideration
5: for me was really what can I learn from these new roles and uh, new jobs out there. So that's when I saw an ad for a traineeship role and I thought, okay, wow, this is a great opportunity for me. to be such a good stepping stone to understand what the tech industry is like as
2: well. I'm a multi-offender, so since 2012, 22- my 38th, I've been in Oh, I don't have a skill, you know, I don't have a certification. I'm actually a very active person, which is why if I'm going to do food delivery and I cycle, and get paid, why not? And then at the same time, there's this opportunity like on the bicycle shop, which is why when I save up doing food delivery, then I went into this bicycle business. I think for
6: me, we are at the cuts in society where it is a clear demographic challenge. On one hand, rapidly aging population. On the other hand, increased dependency on foreign workers. We need more young people joining the sector, not just of elder care, of health care, but really the social sector of creating change and making the society what we want it to be.
3: I think the most prominent one now would be the workload. At the start, when I joined, I already expected there would be a bit of like shift work. Yeah, but nothing prepared me for the night shift. You have to work through 12 hours, then sometimes there are no patients throughout the night, sometimes it's like an entire wave comes together. It has definitely affected my social life.
4: There is a high level of demand, of your time and your energy, especially so when you are in a high performance environment. So it's really about a constant juggling act between the time that you spend with family, time that you spend on rest, time you spend at work, and with friends, etc.
1: I think definitely moving to Singapore was a challenge. Not because Singaporeans are not nice or anything, but just because it was a new culture and a new country. So it was a bit scary. I think having a child was in a way a bit of a challenge, like if a child gets sick. It can be, I think, difficult for some mom to work from home, for instance. Because of the job climate right now, it was a bit difficult to secure a bit more full-time roles.
5: That's why coming into this contract role, it gives me a bit of ease of mind because I know, okay, I'll be there for one year and then maybe from there I'll see how things go. I feel like maybe every industry could be impacted by some kind of external force as well. So maybe job security isn't as what we thought it was nowadays.
2: I tried sending in resumes and stuff like that. My mindset is just Straightforward. My resume with a cover letter indicate I'm a convict, not a first timer or second timer, it's multiple. But if you're interested, then you schedule me down for interview. If not, don't waste both our time. could you UI is quite straightforward. The weather, the traffic, and nasty customers. The platforms are cutting, cutting, cutting down incentive. Actually, you really can feel the heat. I think the pandemic was a challenge
6: for tours. I thought Since it was a low period for the business, it would be the best opportunity to uh, pick up practical skills for caregiving in an institutional setting. That's where I applied for the job in the nursing home as a care staff.
3: As of now, I like my career because I see a lot of potential for growth and fulfillment because of the different career paths and specializations that are available.
4: I never mapped out you know, where I'm going to be next year, in the next five years or ten years. I suspect many Singaporeans do. A career is a very long one. I see it more as a marathon.
1: I really like what I'm doing right now. For now, in my current state, I think I can. But you know, life... There are always changes and challenges, so you never know. When I first stepped into the agency, right, my whole goal was okay, I want to stay there for two
5: years. But I think when I started to face a bit of difficulties, I was actually having a really tough time of deciding should I stay or should I go because people have that impression that you know you do job hop which I think, fair enough, people actually do that but at the same time, you need to look from an individual perspective Once I made that jump to going into the tech industry that's when I actually gained a lot of respect for myself because I knew that, okay, this wasn't the job that was fit for me but now I'm going to move and actually look for something that suits me
2: For the business why can not give you a confirmed yes? Because you know business, you have to see how it goes but definitely no for food delivery I'm still physically fit now at this age as I get older, my body, I don't think I can cope anymore. I think the only reason why I am
6: able to juggle all these stuff for the past two years is I'm still young and I don't think I'll be able to do it for much longer. For me, I also like to consider my life as a social experiment to see how far I can push the boundaries in passion and purpose.
3: Implementing work-life balance policies would be beneficial for employees and employers alike. They are beneficial for employees in terms of um, their overall mental health and their overall well-being. So this would in turn create a more productive and motivated workplace setting. So if we have like mental health leaves, then staff would be more motivated because they know like I'd be able to take this leave to like care for myself on this day, then they don't have to worry as much or be very stressed out throughout the week.
1: If you can, do look for those employers, for those companies who have the right policies. That will allow you to, for instance, work from home, be able to take time off when you need to be with your children. I think that really helps a lot, especially in the early years when your children are so young. At least for me, my
5: understanding of the government, I think they're doing a pretty good job as well. Like for example, you have the Skills Future Credit. Whether you're a fresh grad, whether you're a career switcher, you're able to learn more while, in addition to your job as well. And I think these are such policies that help people to gain new transferable skills that they can bring to the next uh, work.
2: They need to hear from us on the road, or those really Liyu really riders itself, and not from office management, because they are not on the road. They don't know actually what we are facing out there.
6: For the business front, and for people who are pursuing their passion and purpose, I think the end goal is that it needs to also be something that's financially sustainable. I think we cannot depend on government grants or funds to carry a business and to scale it up. Yeah, so I think it's not so much of legislation but more of the economic support, mentorship from other business leaders and community of like-minded entrepreneurs, for example, to gain ideas and insights from.
4: Whether you have a disability or not, you want to feel like you have made it at your job because you have something valuable to put on the table. How much policy comes into play to define that is difficult to say. It's also a matter of having the willingness of the employers to see past disability. The willingness of those looking for employment to step up and put themselves in potentially uncomfortable environments to thrive.
1: This panel will discuss young people's employment aspirations and the new workplace compacts between employers and employees under an evolving labor landscape. The moderator of this panel is Dr. Laurel Teo, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. She will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. May I now invite members of the panel on stage, please?
7: Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Laurel, a Senior Research Fellow with uh, IPS, and very happy to be here this morning to moderate this panel. Uh, the first panel uh, uh, with uh, different speakers on, on stage. So um, our panel is on um, youth and work, and we saw from our video earlier a very interesting range and mix of speakers from very diverse backgrounds. We have people in different industries and different, I think, education levels, and we have ex-offenders and people who also um very active in the civic um, society s- sphere. So um, likewise, um, on stage with me today, I have panelists from, uh, we're very lucky to have panelists from a diverse um, range of uh, jobs and experiences as well. Uh, uh, they are arranged in order of which they will speak to you later. So um, immediately to my right is uh, Miss Tian Wenli, <coughs> she'll be the first speaker. She's currently a journalist with the Straits Times and covering the social and education beats. Uh, But Wenli is no stranger to IPS. Uh, Up until last year, she was with IPS Social Lab uh, as an ethnographer and researcher. Uh, She was a very integral part of a large and impactful study that the Social Lab did on platform food delivery delivery riders, uh, workers. And she also uh, does research on intergenerational poverty, in-work poverty, and she has personally worked as a meat packer in a meat packing factory uh, to better immerse herself in experiences of uh, those uh, who work in blue-collar jobs. So she has lots of experience on what youth and people in the lower sort of uh, lower social class and low-income groups feel and what are their challenges and their aspirations. Um, and then to and the next speaker we have is Professor Sam Yam. Uh, he's currently the Provost Chair, uh, Professor of Management and head of Department of Management and Organization Department at um, NUS Business School. Uh, Professor Yam uh, specializes in psychology of technology at work and also leadership and business ethics. And he looks at how future work will affect employees, customers and organizations. So he will come from the perspective of very rigorous uh, scientific research on the social psychology and behavioral perspective of uh, how people behave at work, future of work. So he will talk about uh, in his presentation, he'll talk about generational differences in workers' attitudes, and what are some of the, um, uh, some, and then draw from his own research project as what are some of those causes. And then last but not least, we have Miss Natasha Choi, who is Acting Director of Youth Development at uh, NTUC. So she has more than 10 years of experience in the labour movement, and um, <clears throat> she now leads efforts to empower and support youth in the work and career aspirations. And recently, just last year in 2023, I believe NTUC Youth Task Force has completed a report on the new generation worker. It's a combination of one year's uh, engagement with youth from age 17 to 25 through um, interviews, dialogues, Focus group discussions and surveys. So Natasha will be touching on some of the findings and relate like, relate that to what we saw in the video. And I shall say that uh, with the exception of myself, everybody on this panel is um, age thirty five and below. So <laughs> you are here from the real youth. Okay, okay. So uh, Winley, um if I could invite you to uh, mm-hmm. present your
8: yeah. Um. So. I'll be mainly talking about like how do we understand young workers through gig work? Like what are the values and priorities? So. Um like previously mentioned, I spent some time in a factory, um, and factory life is very rigid. It's governed by rules and regulation, you know, uh, you are structured by your time and everything, so I had to, like, punch a card every time. The break time is very precise, and um, so I, this is while my salary slips, so if you actually look at it, I was paid $7 an hour, and then... You can see the number of hours that they calculated 61.52 it's calculated to two decimal place right so i was like why don't you just round it out? it's only a few cents so um it's very precise and it's it's mostly all older generation workers uh, the older working class so i think i entered uh, the factory around like my early 20s and i was probably the only Person, Singaporean worker that was in my 20s when I entered the factory. So and I have so much respect for them because they have to come, you know, like 7 a.m. every day to all the way until like 6 p.m. every single day. So and, but then the question is, where are the young workers, right? So um, after, you know, maybe it's good that the younger uh, workers, they have more opportunities, they can explore, they have more education, they explore different career pathways, but there are still blue-collar jobs in Singapore. So And one of the prominent ones is obviously the gig worker, the gig work economy. So um, after I was hired by IPS, uh, I was part of the team um, in work poverty uh, in NUS and IPS led by Professor Irene Ng and Professor, uh, Dr. Matthew Matthews. So um, we did ethnography on platform gig workers, so we... Uh, Interviewed and followed about 83 Singaporeans aged 21 to 40 years old. And we did two major surveys of about 1,000 private hires and 1,000 food delivery workers. And it was from 2020 to 2023 during the pandemic years and the rise and fall of uh, you know, the income and incentives of gig work. So, um, and there are a lot of appeal to gig work. Right, And there's this whole idea of the entrepreneurial spirit attached to young, the youth, people want to make a lot of money, people want to be their own boss, there's a lot of flexibility involved. And, um, you know, they can cater to their caregiving needs, they can cater to a lot of the, their own passion, their own hobbies while uh, doing this kind of job. And there's also this idea of like this perceived fairness and equality that appeals to a lot of gig workers. For example, there's this opportunity to earn more than what they would normally have in other jobs that might be available to them as, um, you know, factory work, maybe, you know, you work so long, but you only have $2,000, 3000 at most. So there's this idea that, okay, like Andy, for example, all these are fake names, by the way. Andy, he's an ex-factory worker. Um, he didn't really like the, the structured life, so he wanted flexibility, so he began to do uh, Gig work, and even though the incentives have dropped, everything has fallen. Demand has fallen. He still found it better than the other available jobs to him because of his low education, and there's also this sense of there's an equal playing field. Like an ex-convict um, can you know can just become a gig worker. There's no human manager. You know, imposing stereotypes on him and stuff like that. And also, Marcus. He was previously in hospitality for ten years. He worked in the hotel for ten years before reaching the manager status. And he earned about three thousand plus when he left, because he was looking at okay, my pay increment is only like hundred dollars, you know. And the people below me, the pay increment is only like ten dollars, twenty dollars. But with gig work, if I work hard enough. I can earn $5,000, $6,000. So there's this this idea of meritocracy for um, some of the riders. But what does it really mean, right? So it takes a lot to succeed in gig work. So the reality is many people don't. Uh, Most people earn, uh, you know, the medium salary we found in our survey was 1.9 from food delivery work, 1.9K. So... I followed uh, Marcus around. So he was one of the top people in Isshun. So he was, because my stamina is not very good. So he was like, okay, uh, I can, you can just come on a chill day, on a Sunday, my half day. And then his half day turned out to be nine hours long. And so I cycled with him for nine hours, no break. And the algorithm recognized that he's so good that he, they, the algorithm sends him to very far places so if you look at this photo uh, his bicycle is the only bicycle in a sea of like e-bikes and motorbikes This' how good he was and there's also another rider here um, I followed him cycling through the thunderstorm and he really prefers thunderstorm because there's more incentives involved and there's a lot more uh, le- a lot less competition and these people work Insane amount of hours, physically cycling and you know mo- on the motorbike, and they earned about. It. But there's a lot of variation. Like for example, Marcus uh, Ishun was very competitive, so even though he worked like crazy, he only earned like at most like six thousand a month. But compared to someone else who worked in a different place, maybe they could earn more money. So um, and the really the reality is, you need a lot of discipline and you'll forget forgo a lot of flexibility and. There are many, many precarious workers. The huge majority of them don't earn six thousand seven thousand eight thousand um, dollars. If you walk around the rental housing neighborhoods, you'll see a lot of like delivery bags around in the corridors because a lot of them prefer this kind of flexible work um, and it's It's very dangerous in a sense that you might get very dependent. And it's very dependent on the market forces. Like, for example, another uh, one rider sent me a photo of this uh, suspended account. And her and her husband were both suspended overnight. And then they lost, they lost their livelihood overnight. And there's um, another rider. He was on a motorbike. So I followed him for two hours in CBD area. And he earned less than $20 in two hours on a motorbike. So then you have to calculate your fuel and, you know, all of those kind of things. So it's, it's really like... um. You know, they they do want to transition out. A lot of the riders uh, responded in our survey that they do hope to transition out, but where do they go, right? There is also an issue of uh, horizontal mobility, meaning that they, they do move around a lot, but they don't really move up, right? Their friends and family may introduce them to different jobs, different opportunities, or they might follow trends. For example, healthcare was very big. IT was very big, but it might not be... Very focused in a way, so it, it might be good um, for the, because they're young so they can try out different opportunities. but at the same time, they are kind of just jumping in many, many things and um, some might be successful. they might take causes that specialize to their advantage um, to their, what they are really good at. I, I know some riders who have managed to successfully transition out to become um, you know ambulance drivers or like uh, executives and all that, but um, and they might hustle and they might do a lot. Of like side jobs, and like one um, participant in the video, he mentioned that you know he's still young, he can juggle a lot of things. But at what point would you want to stop the? Would you want to stop the hustling, right? Um, and many riders may keep going back to gig work because it fulfills a lot of the needs that they need, like they need flexibility, you know, caregiving needs and all that. Um, they might transition out, but there's a lot of uh, it's kind of like a safety net, the gig work economy is always there. Even though it's falling, the rates are falling, the fares are falling, it's become uh, more and more hard to sustain a livelihood on it. Um, And also, there's also the issue of like passion. So how much value do the labour market place on passion? So there are a lot of passionate people. So I remember talking to um, this person, so I also follow him around, and he told me that he broke his foot, so he couldn't do food delivery work, so he decided to pursue his passion. So he really, really loves bicycles, so he worked in a bike shop full-time. But then he realized that he cannot survive on the paycheck alone, and then immediately after he recovered, he went back to food delivery uh, full-time so that he could do part-time bike work because that's where he really loves, um, that's, that's where his passion lies. So it's kind of like he's using a, another thing to fund his passion, you know? So it's perhaps there is like a lot of um, gaps in the labor market for young people, right? Because uh, research have shown that graduates earn much more than non-graduates, and the gap is very big when it comes to salary. And um, even though gig work has many, many, many issues, it's not sustainable, you know, it's not really a long career path for them, but there are still some appeal to gig work to some people. It's dangerous, you know, you have to put in so long hours. I remember a guy, he wanted to make a lot of money, so he did very extreme things like work uh, 16 hours every day for like 21 days straight, and then he ended up in an accident, got into a coma. But he was like, okay, the money I earned from them, I can set up a food business. So they saw the appeal of it, and they saw like, the, the, the appeal of flexibility and, and all of those kind of things. right? So young people don't want to work in a factory forever their whole lives. I know that because I, <laughs> I work in a factory, and I don't really want to work there my whole life. Um, you know, the, the labor landscape might not be very favorable to some people in a way, so they want to find a path that fulfills them, fulfill their livelihood. So maybe we can understand their experiences and their struggles from gig work to really try to you know, better design jobs for the youths, um, especially those from low-wage uh, work. Yeah, thank you.
7: Thank you so much, Wani, for those fascinating <laughs> insights. Um, now we move to uh, Professor Sam Yem. If uh, you could share a little bit of your thoughts about the video and then also segue into your own presentation.
9: Uh, good morning, everyone. So, uh, two disclaimers. Um, before I arrive at this room at 9 o'clock, I thought I'd be speaking to 50 academics. So, uh, presence of parts to me as students, as um, corporate partners, as other folks here. So, excuse my jargon in my, um, in my presentation in terms of uh, research on. Uh, differences in attitudes and work values uh, among different generations. Uh, Second disclaimer, I'm actually not a Singaporean, I'm uh, from Hong Kong. I've been here for about nine years, educating at the NUS Business School, Uh, educated hundreds and hundreds of students, so I've seen some differences across the years in the past, approximately a decade, when I uh, have been an educator at NUS. Now, today I want to talk a little bit about uh, my research, as well as my colleague's research, about are there any differences in generations in terms of work values, attitudes, and behaviors. Before I address my presentation, I want to first talk a little bit about um, the the survey that was presented just now, the polling survey from the the institute, as well as the video. So um, marriage is a big topic in terms of people not wanting to get married. Uh, Retirement is a big topic. Healthcare is a big topic. Climate change is a big topic. Now, in psychology, we have this concept that was developed about 25 years ago called effective forecasting. Effectively means that when you want to engage in a behavior, you first estimate, you first forecast, how happy or how unhappy you will be if you do engage in that behavior. So, getting married is a great example. Uh, finding a new job, great examples. Now, research also shows that we are extremely, extremely bad at forecasting how we will feel following an event that would happen in the future. I'll give you one example. Now, uh, many years ago, in 1998, the guy named Dan Gilbert, a very famous psychologist at Harvard uh, Business School, in which he asked his undergraduate students in Psych 101, hundreds of them, two simple questions. First, he asked them, to what extent, excuse me, first he asked them this question, are you currently dating or are you currently single? Now, half the students said they were dating someone, they have a boyfriend, they have a girlfriend, The other half said they were single. Now they follow up by the second question saying that, are you really happy right now, all right? And then following that up, he also asked them, in six months, Let's assume that for the persons who are currently attached, assuming that your girlfriend or boyfriend just dumped you, you break up with your boyfriend and girlfriend. The other half, those who are currently single, forecast how you feel in six months that you are actually having a boyfriend or girlfriend. Now, those individuals who were asked to forecast how they will feel after they experience a breakup, the fact they will feel devastated, they will feel a lot of negative affect, a lot of negative emotions six months after. Those who said, "I'm currently single." If six months later I have a boyfriend and girlfriend, they will feel very, very elated and happy. Now, six months after, after the students back to the, to the, uh, to the class, asked them this question, are you currently single? Are you currently uh, still attached to your former boyfriend or girlfriend? And ask them the happiness level. Now, what's really interesting is that those who said that they would be really upset if their boyfriend and girlfriend uh, break up with them actually did not experience those unhappiness that they forecast they would experience six months before. Now, but if you think very carefully about how we behave and how we enact behaviors in the future, we use our current estimate of how we will feel to determine if we should date certain people, should find a new job, or should become an entrepreneur. When in fact, in reality, after those events occur and happen, we simply don't feel such negative emotions. Now, for those who have dated, for those who have been um, uh, dumb, in, in <laughs> excuse my language, Um, Whenever that happens, typically you don't say, I'm very upset, I'm very happy. Of course, you say something like that, but follow up by saying, you know what, that person is not that good. I deserve someone way better. Just defend something against the kick in that will defend you from those negative effects. And for now, the first thing I want to encourage you in this room, as well as in those videos, is that if you want to pursue a career, being an entrepreneur, for example, that you think will be risky, will be be potentially leading you to a financial um, dismay, please just do it, because in reality, once it happens, even though if you fail, you won't feel upset about this. All right? So that's one thing I want to respond to the video. Now, um, second of all, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, differences in attitudes and values across different generations. First, I want to say it's incredibly difficult to um, tease out between age differences and gender differences. The idea is that if you survey youth today, uh, the polling uh, earlier this morning, it's really hard to say if it's based on age or based on generation. Now, uh, in research uh, published um, approximately a decade ago, a psychologist uh, at Fordham University actually looked at these differences in a more holistic manner, in a more um, uh, uh, rigorous way, as I would say. Now, the biggest difference in terms of our father or grandfather generation and our current generation has typically been how much people valued uh, pleasure, like right? Things outside of work, do they actually enjoy Do they actually have a hobbies? Do they actually want to hang out with their friends? And so on and so forth. The other things, typically, the differences are quite minimal. Now, the other thing that people typically address is that, so we know that differences in terms of how people think, how people act in the workplace, what causes these differences? Now in our human history of technology, uh, as a psychologist, I like to think about this from a technology angle. I like to claim, they claim that all these things happen because we interact technology in very, very different manners. So think about the 90s, all right, when I was a very young child. In the 90s, what happened is that cell phone became quite popular. You have large cell phones, you have the Nokia, now you have the iPhone. Now in the 90s, if you want to talk to people, you simply pick up a cell phone and you call someone. In the 2000s, when I was a teenager, uh, we have ICQs, we have MSN messengers that we used to contact with our friends. Now what's interesting is that those two means, those two technological means, these are unmediated. We can still decide who we want to call. We can pick up the phone from our friends, and so on and so forth. Now, Teens today, youth today, don't grow up with just cell phones. They don't grow up with just ICQ. In fact, it's in my, in my, um, from my best knowledge, it's actually gone. In fact, they grow up with a little social media that I call unmediated, excuse me, mediated interaction. Right? What does it mean by that? In the past, everything is unmediated. We choose what to see, who to talk to, how to interact. Today, the reality is slightly different in that every single individual have their own little bubble of their own mediated reality. So take recent examples like the conflict in the Middle East, the conflicts in Ukraine, for example. Now, the reality is out there that two sides are having a a, a military conflict. Now, unfortunately, Every single one of them perceive those conflicts very, very differently, despite the fact that reality is exactly the same. It's the reason because we have YouTube, we have different channels, we have Instagram, we have, we have X, and so on and so forth, that actually affect how we see things. We no longer choose what we see. In contrast, technology companies, tech companies, simply mediate what we see. And of course, we have an agenda in mind that is to maximize their profit, at the same time um, keeping us hooked on those, uh, on those devices. Now, at the very end, I want to talk a little bit about uh, my research that was done in, um, in, in, in Singapore. Now, in this project, we look at, does using AI actually reduce people's value of hard work? In our parents' generation, we typically think of this as of some work ethic, that working hard is a moral virtue. If you work really hard, you should be rewarded. As a result, working hard is a virtue that we all should embrace. Now, youth today, there's a lot of uh, uh, lay belief that they don't believe the same thing as being true. Now, that being said, I want to find out the reason, one of the causes of this um, of the decline in the perceived value of a hard work. Now, in this project, we make the argument, excuse me, we make the argument that using AI actually reduces how unique the work is to you as a person. That if you use AI to do your work, for example, you simply devalue how you s- yourself feel in terms of uniqueness of the work that you produce. Now, in this project that was done in Singapore, we surveyed a lot of undergraduate students aged about 20 to 24. These are NUS Business School undergraduate students. We've done this in, in high school in Singapore as well, and so far the findings have been replicated uh, in across different contexts. In the interest of time, I'll just present one study using undergraduate in Singapore uh, uh, for you. So in this case, we have approximately 200 participants. We assign them randomly to two conditions. In one group, they were asked to use ChatGPT to write a simple essay that we say, you know what, we're going to write an essay, and we want you to write it with the assistant of chat GBT. The other group, they were asked to write the same essay without any assistance from outside sources. Now, they respond to some survey variable, and then they also rate how good the essay actually they wrote were. Uh, in addition to that, we actually have external raters, people who have not uh, known this participant. They have not known the, about the studies. They actually rate the essay quality to provide objective measure of the essay. Now, what's interesting is that we find that those in the AI condition, those who use AI to assist with their work, actually find hard work to be less relevant and less useful for them in their lives, all right? And it's driven by a sense of reduced perceived uniqueness of the work that they produce, suggesting that use of AI actually can undermine the value of hard work among you. Now, on the more interesting side, we also look at the essay quality, that if you use AI to write your essay, how would that affect the essay quality? On the panel on the left, uh, looking at the self-rating, you can see that those individuals who self-rate themselves do not perceive any differences in essay quality written by just themselves or with themselves plus AI assistants. Those on the right is for the external raters, suggesting that those who are actually uh, are blind to the condition actually find essays written by both the humans and the ChatGPT to be way, of, <laughs> way higher quality compared to those just written by the subjects themselves. Now, all of this is showing that we know for a fact that there's generation differences in terms of the youth and in terms of their parents and their grandparents. We don't know very well about the causes of differences. And there's a lot of research showing that perhaps technology and how interact technology actually affect how youth think about work and value and work behavior themselves. Thank you very much.
7: Thank you so much, uh, Professor Sam Yem. Um, you actually addressed the question that I meant to ask was how much of the issues that we see earlier was due to the fact of age, just being young. Whether you're young now or young in the 90's or young in the 80's, young people just tend to feel that way versus a, a generational thing. It's a, it, uh, what you're seeing now is actually unique because of the time that we're in now, because of technology you are facing. So that was very fascinating. Also a comparison, maybe a thought worth thinking about later on is um, in the past, the mediated reality that our parents and grandparents had was mediated through traditional media like newspapers, TV, and um, radio. So so not customized mass Mm-hmm. Media, but these days um, realities are still mediated but through more customized um, like social media accounts. Who do you follow? So, these are so what are the differences that are then engendered because of these differences? That's quite interesting. We can talk about that later. Um, finally, we have Natasha. Uh, if you could uh, share with us your views of what you saw earlier and then a little bit about your own presentation.
10: Yeah. Um, so, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you also to IPS for inviting me to be on this panel. So the sentiments shared by youths in the video on the various topics were largely similar to what um, NTUC discovered during our youth task force engagement in the past year. So the youth task force engagement was a campaign we embarked on to engage youths in the IHLs to better understand their work-life aspirations. So we also understood that COVID-19 disrupted many of their educational as well as um, career aspirations, leaving many of them to feel ill-prepared um, in terms of entering the workforce. So it's no surprise that many youths also started you know, to express some of their anxieties on social media. So on NTUC's part, uh, we wanted to understand how we could better support as well as enable the youths. So on in stepping into the workforce, um, the top three areas that youths worry about are whether they will be able to achieve work-life balance, their ability to adapt to work, and whether they can decide on a career path without um, you know, being limited by the expectations of others. So beyond numbers, um, I thought today I also wanted to share the realities and thoughts of some of the youth we've spoken to um, during this engagement. So over here we have um, Angel, right? So when asked about his thoughts on stepping into the workforce, this was what went through his mind. Right. Diagnosed with um, ADHD at a young age, he shared that he was judged and misunderstood because of um, you know, his uncontrolled behavior at times. So he wondered if the future workplace would be one that was inclusive enough to accept him and to give him an opportunity to shine. Next, we have uh, Wensi. So Wenqi is also um, here today at the the conference. So Wenqi aspires to be a business consultant by day and a matchmaker by night. So I'm sure you can also feel her energy and cheerfulness um, from this quote alone. However, um, in our chat with her, we also sense a tinge of fear, uh, especially in terms of securing a job uh, once she graduated. So she had seen peers who had found it difficult to do so. Um, settling for anything that came by. So she was afraid that you know, whether there would be a mismatch of skills, whether she would be able to possess um, you know, skills to basically go through the many um, stringent interview processes, etc. So we've definitely heard you know, the same feedback from many of the youths we've interacted. And then we have um, Zaki, whom we learned was a curious adventurer who loves uh, night walks and martial arts. He defines personal success as being able to provide for his family and future children. And work-life balance matters a lot to him. So he believes time should be allocated for work and family, and he hopes to be someone who is valued for his experiences as well as his skills. So Angel, Wincy, and Zaki are just some of the youths uh, we've had the privilege of meeting. And at these engagements, it was hard not to feel youthful again because of their energy and vibrance. However, in interacting with these youths, hearing their perspectives, anxieties, even the lingo that they were using, some of us couldn't help but feel a certain generation gap. And I think this would be a prevailing challenge for a multi-generational workforce. So I'm glad that besides um, the NTUC Youth Task Force, the theme of uh, SP2024 is on youth. I do think that as a society, we do need to give different stakeholders a better understanding. Of um, the work-life aspirations of the, the younger work, uh, of the younger generation, so how then um, do, the, do youth envision their ideal workplace? So from our findings, they have expressed a strong desire to connect as well as to collaborate with others. Mentorship was a key aspect they've brought up, as it allows them to gain um, real-world insights as well as have a better understanding of. Uh, work expectations. The ideal future workplace is also one where they can build um, their professional portfolios, explore career progression opportunities. Um, It is also flexible, it uh, involves them in decision making, and it emphasises the importance of purpose-driven practices. So in that regard, um, I do think that different stakeholders, NTUC included, we must adapt ourselves uh, to meet the evolving needs and aspirations of our youth. Uh, work alongside them in shaping a future where their contributions are valued, their potential is nurtured, and their voices are heard. Thank you. Thank you so much, Inchasha.
7: Okay. Okay,
10: thanks so much. Um, so
7: that rounds out our, our speaker's presentation. Um, we will next go into question and answer session. So we have about 45 minutes uh, for audience from the floor. Uh, you can send, uh, You can either go up to the mics that we have lined up on either side of the room, and then um, ask your questions, or you can also send them through a Pigeonhole. Um, if, um, so may I request that for those who go up to the mic, please uh, state your name, uh, the organisation that you represent, and then ask, um, uh, please uh, restrict yourself to one question so that we have, uh, we have time for uh, more people to ask questions. Um, anybody first? Any takers of first question? Oh, there? Okay, yep.
8: Um, hello, panelists. I'm Charlotte Cowell from CHIJ St. Theresa's Convent, and this question is for all three. So, could the increase in gig jobs possibly be because youths do not want to have a normal sit-down job, but something more interesting, like where you can go around and explore around? Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Okay, maybe you. we can start
7: with Wenli since uh, this is what you've been researching. <laughs>
8: uh, so I, I guess that there is like this idea that uh, you know, youths don't really want, uh, because it, it's a time of exploration, it's a time of finding out what you want to do. So. And they wanna break the cycle of like you know a nine to five in an office job. So maybe gig work do appeal to, to that, but at the same time, um, there's also this idea of like an entrepreneur's so so this is not this is not new. Every young generation wants to take risks. They want to make it big. They want to, you know, um, you know, be an entrepreneur. So, and then after that, they get married and have children and a different story <laughs> will come. <laughs> so, it is this idea that, you know, when you're young, uh, it's okay to take risks. It's okay to try out different things. Um, And it's not necessarily, you know, gig work. Um, Gig work is you don't really, unless you really try and you really forego your flexibility, you work long, long hours, then you can earn a lot of money. Uh, But it also comes with, like, freelancing, like, in the creative industry, in the film industry, you know, different types of jobs that might appeal to youth. Um, But... um, that they also have to you have to think about your sustainability like when you're in your thirties and your forties. Can you still do such jobs unless you, you know, become a business owner, you know, in the industry itself? I, I I'm not sure and I can't really answer that. So mm. yeah, so but I, I do think that there's a certain appeal for youths. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Professor?
9: Yeah. So I interact with population, uh, clearly at U.S. business school, the students are very smart, intelligent and talented. Uh, and very few of them actually indicate they want to ever engage in, in what we call gate work. So I feel like this is also a, a kind of like a selection problem that it seems like um, some youth uh, have, have sort of lost their direction or they have never really seek um, or find out what their passions are. Whereas um, college students who have graduates um, who have a better uh, socioeconomic status typically have better mentoring, we mentioned mentoring a little bit, uh, better guidance from their parents, from their peers, uh, from the siblings even and uh, i think as a result those individuals are more inclined to not take gig work and i really wish to um, encourage your gig workers to think beyond the flexibility uh, like what the other speaker mentioned earlier is that when you're age 25 35 you can ride a bike no problem but eventually it's not just a physical demand it's also like your mental demands do you find that to be intrinsically rewarding to be a gig worker, or are you just finding that flexibility to be enjoy- enjoyable because you work eight hours a day times 365 days from 35 years, you have got to find your passion, what you're interested in, uh, and get work simply. I'm not ruling this out, but get work simply is um, more unlikely to prevent uh, to provide that sense of enjoyment, the sense of uh, satisfaction from a successful career.
10: Um, so in the NCUC Youth Task Force engagements, when we got down to the ground to engage, um, you know, students in the different IHLs, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that they've shared with us was. Um, the flexibility mm-hmm. of uh, that gig job provides. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we discovered was that um, in doing so, they were able to pursue their passions on the site, right? Um, any hobbies that they had, whether it could get them any money, or it could also be in the form of, for example, skills-based volunteering. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, the appeal is, is of the gig job is really in helping them uh, build up their, their professional portfolio, as we discussed earlier. And, and I don't necessarily think that a you know, gig job means that you have to go out to, to do it. I think some of it can also be performed at home, for example. So I think it boils down to, to this flexibility and ability to let them uh, pursue their passions. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, we heard about uh, flexibility
7: and, and being one of the attractions and we also heard from uh, Sam about how um, think beyond just the here and now and see in how much longer can you, can you hold on to this job for? And what about other things like you know personal fulfilment, right? Um, which is kind of related to this next question. I'm going to bring up a, a question uh, from, from on, online that has got 22 upvotes. So it's one of the most popular questions. It's kind of related. So this question asks... Um, do the panelists think it's important to attract younger Singaporeans to blue-collar jobs? Will raising salaries help? If not, what would it take? So we talked earlier about how um, a blue-collar job like delivery riding is actually may not be very... Um, fulfilling personally in, in, in a career way to, to young people, but how then, um, but, but there are going, going to continue to be blue collar jobs existing. So how then can we make it more attractive? Or should we try so hard to attract younger workers into these blue collar jobs? Maybe uh, we can ask uh, Professor Samiam to take it
9: up. I, I just simply think that from an economic perspective, um, the second part of the question uh, would, well, salary, of course that would help, but simply that is unlikely to happen based on the uh, labor market structure in Singapore. So uh, salary would likely stay stagnant among blue-collar occupation, just like other countries that have developed economy. So this simply is a possibility that's highly unlikely to happen. Now, do I think it's important to attract uh, young Singaporeans to blue-collar jobs? Um, I am I'm I'm somewhat indifferent to this, to this question. Uh, I feel like uh, all kind of jobs have different values and different, um, different promises. So I, I, don't, I don't see any issue with a uh, young Singaporean wanting to pursue a blue-collar occupation. I don't think that salary would uh, real salary would rise dramatically based on the uh, labour market structure in Singapore.
8: Okay. Any other thoughts from other panelists, Wendy? Um, So, I don't think salary will rise uh, a lot. Same thinking, but I do think that um, there's this like stigma against blue collar work. But there's a lot of very highly skilled blue collar workers out there, and young people, you know, they might take. Years, if not decades, to really uh, honor their, their skills. Mm. And there's a lot of vocational jobs, you know. Mm. And we do need blue collar workers in every single society, right? We need a plumber, we need like people who fix our things, and those are very valuable skills. And we are slowly starting to kind of lose those skills as, as we develop um, as a society. Like, I can't fix my TV, I can't, I don't know what, I I really don't know how to fix my toilet. And you know? also so I, I do need, like, in uh, every society, we need. These people, and we need uh, like just like people who can code, people who can teach, people who can you know do all of those things. So I, I do think it's very important that we should stop um, stigmatizing blue collar jobs, even even factory work. It's very decent. It's a very honest work. Right? Yeah. So I think um, it's not just attracting, but it's to to kind of just give a, a it, remove the negative image around blue collar work. Yeah.
7: Okay. So basically, give more dignity
5: to. It.
10: Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, Natasha, you? Yeah, so I, I don't think that, um, you know, one of the defining qualities of the younger generation is in terms of their um, diversity in career aspirations, right? So I do think that we need to recognise that basically for the youth out there, there are different career paths that they want to pursue. And this could, for example, be, uh, be, be a career, um, you know, in, in a blue-collar job, right? Mm-hmm. A skills trade, for example. Yeah. Um, and I think that certainly... Um, is more room to, to make you know, blue-collar jobs more attractive, um, and I think with the employers, we could work with them on uh, skills progression, you know, the, the, the compensation benefit, uh, package and whatnot. Um, from young NTUC's perspective, what we have tried to do um, was to basically allow uh, youth who are graduating from IHLs to, to explore uh, different different career pathways. And, and we did so by launching the Career um, Starter Lab. So essentially what it is, is a career trial of up to three months. And it allows youth to basically, um, you know, work in, in different jobs. So we have technicians and, and whatnot. And in this career trial, there's actually a career, there's a structured training as well as mentorship. So they are able to learn more deeply um, you know what? What kind of prospects uh, they can they can anticipate if they do join this industry, this job, for example. And I think that is a much better way in helping the youth understand what are some uh, possibilities for the job. And hopefully, that can help to you know attract them into that sector. So to have some sort of more pre-tasting sessions of these jobs.
7: Okay, All right. Thank you, Natasha. Um, we have a question from the floor.
0: Uh, thank you for the fascinating conversation so far. Uh, My name is Satya, I work for a bank called SMBC. Uh, I've had a career in in, uh, professional services for a very long time, and I was fascinated by the the conversation specifically on the topic of social status. Uh, Peter Drucker, uh, the father of modern management, said uh, knowledge workers, uh, you know, can only be uh, rewarded ultimately with social status. And, uh, you know, you can bribe them with things like stock options. And I'm trying to change that here from the gig working point, point. Uh, and I'll come to my question shortly. Uh, my question is, uh, in your research, where are you seeing the role of sta- social status featuring in moving people more towards jobs which will give them ultimate fulfillment? And I'm asking that because at some point, Singapore will have autonomous vehicles, and You know, I'm assuming that many of these jobs will potentially go away. Uh, But also in more broader jobs, we're all moving towards services economy. Uh, AI is coming in and disrupting a lot of the traditional, uh, you know, white collar work. So where do you see social status featuring in this? And, you know, it'll be interesting to understand your research, thank you.
7: Okay, thank you, so your question is, how much does social status factor in people's considerations when they take up jobs?
0: Yeah, and how how do you drive uh, jobs towards securing better social status? The important jobs, thank you.
7: Okay, thank you.
0: I
9: I think I can answer this first question. A lot of economists have done a lot of research about um, uh, pay, social status, and life satisfaction, for example, and the gentleman is uh, um, obviously very correct in that a lot of jobs, especially in white collar um, uh, industry, Uh, high paying jobs, Uh, the marginal value of making an extra 10, 15K a year is actually none in terms of uh, satisfaction of uh, life and happiness. And uh, the famous uh, Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman uh, did a paper in 2018, I believe, that suggests that you only need 100K uh, US dollar to be satisfied. That figure is updated about $140,000 by a recent paper in Nature Human Behavior. Now, uh, most people, when you ask them, if you make more than, let's say, 200K Singaporean dollar, how would you feel? they will always forecast to be very, very happy. They'll be elated uh, when research shows the otherwise. Like your gentleman was saying is that the marginal value of an extra 10K on that income is, <clears throat> excuse me, is simply none in terms of happiness. Uh, so that become a different question than what is driving individuals, to high achieving individuals, to achieve even more in their life and their career. And status is obviously one of the many things that people strive for. Um, that uh, in my workplace, for example, we have a lot of colleagues who who, who are having a very good paycheck and still work very, very hard because they're interested in that work, they're passionate about that work, and doing good work lead to more status for them as well. So absolutely correct that uh, status is one of the most important predictor, especially among um, uh, those who are in, in high-paying jobs in Singapore.
7: Okay, thank you. Um, any other perspectives from other speakers? No?
9: Nope?
7: Okay. Um, okay, we have one more question from the all
4: over there.
11: Yeah, um, yeah, Matthew Ting from the Southern Foundation. Um, what do you think about um, expectations of the youth or, or new workers, especially in relation—not just in terms of uh, you know white collar, blue collar, but also in terms of even within the white collar and SME versus MNC, right? So a lot of us think, oh, you know, uh, you know, I I, I want a high pay, flexibility, and whatever, and a lot of these you can only get. Uh, in an MNC, right? You, you hear about, oh, Google can, can, can let their staff do this. Yeah. But Google is, is a huge MNC. They have thousands of staff. So, you know, they, they, they have the ability to, to, to shift work among so many people. But in reality, the majority of firms in Singapore and in many other countries would be SMEs, right? So how do you get workers, uh, you know, to, to mentally prepare that you would probably be working in, in, in an, MN, uh, an SME rather than MNC and not to expect, you know, that, that, that everybody's going to get into an MNC
7: Okay, uh, thank you so much. And actually, I want to bring up that uh, this is in relation to another question we had online: was um, how um, how can we get um, uh, people to be more interested in jobs that are less glamorous? <laughs> so is it that? there was a question online on that. So um, it's in relation to that. So um, everyone wants to go for something like Google, uh, where you have uh, or Bloomberg or something, where you have you know big MNC, fantastic office, free flow of. Drinks and snacks in the office, but in reality, um, most of us, ninety-nine percent, have to work for an SME. So then, how do you um, get people to adjust their expectations, and then how do you get people to accept that most of you may not work in a job as glamorous as you see on your uh, the or what you see depicted in the influencers and social media accounts? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Natasha, you can talk about that. Yeah, mm. pick that up.
10: Um. But also from, from my interactions with the youth at least, um, I think when they look for their first job or when they look for internships, for example, I think they're very clear-minded about the kind of skills that they're hoping to build um, you know, during that stint, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that for SMEs, for example, one, one of the things that uh, employers, such employers can consider um, is to be clearer, you know, in terms of uh, what exactly... The, the youth might be working on if he or she were to accept a, a role in the company and I think this could uh, you know really help to attract uh, the right candidates even into into the job and and I think it really boils down to that because youth today are quite clear-minded about uh, what they want to do to, to build up their professional portfolios and they see it as you know multiple stepping stones mm-hmm. right they don't only you know view um, their, their career uh, pathway being in one company, for example. Yeah, so so they will be looking for different options and it will be based on how they can build up their professional portfolios. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, any other views from panellists? Wendy? Anything? I think like
8: a career pathway, you know, it, the life of a career is very long. So youth will have to prepare that, okay, maybe this is, to reframe it like this is an experience building thing. So I'm going to try out different uh, industries, different things. It might not be glamorous, but that's okay, because you can still gain mm. skills and experience and find out what you want and what you don't like. Yeah, so I still think there's value in, in even though um, you want like, you know, glamorous things, but <laughs> you can also learn a lot from other kind of work also, yeah. Right.
7: No, thank you. Actually, I think it gels with a survey that we did last year, the future work survey, in that we mm-hmm. asked people what to rank, I think, 14 different job characteristics. What is it that you value most? And among young people, it is about um, building a portfolio skills and career advancement rather than compared to older age groups. So um, your advice to SMEs out there yep. to attract uh, younger workers to package your your job description better about what you can offer uh, in terms of hard skills and what kind of experience they can expect when they join a firm is, is, is very, very handy. Um, and we have another question from the floor there, this lady there. Yep.
3: <coughs> Thank you for that. Um, just from the Queensland University of Technology, I was just wanting to ask what do you think schools and universities should be teaching to help people better be prepared to graduate into the workforce post-COVID?
7: So what schools and universities should be teaching to help prepare people better for the workforce and especially the workforce that we're currently looking at? Um, Okay, any first takers for this question?
9: Um, So I actually just got back from Indonesia yesterday. I was teaching a class in negotiation uh, in Jakarta for NUS. Uh, So I feel like um, um, many degree programmed not just in Singapore, but globally, uh, seems to jump on the bandwagon of AI and technology. And those are really important skill sets, and our undergraduate students typically enjoy those very, very much. Now, at NUS, for example, if you move along the um, the degree ladder, so to speak, from the bachelor's degree to master's to executive EMBAs and to other things, uh, at the end of the day, typically, uh, when a manager turns about age 40, 45, uh, those skill sets, those what I could call quantifiable skill sets, like AI, technology, how to use Excel, for example, those become way less relevant because you can always outsource people to do that on behalf of you. Now, uh, I teach negotiation, I teach leadership at NUS, and I got a sense that in the past 10 years, nothing has changed. Is that the people skill, the management skill, and the leadership um, um, capabilities? are just important no matter what age that we live in. Technology cannot really ever outsource. We can never outsource uh, leading people to AI and technology. So I feel like uh, our institution today can prepare youth by better managing them on the people side of things as opposed to just the quantitative side of things.
7: Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, any views from other speakers?
10: Yeah. So so I, I mean, in, in response to the question, I was thinking about you know what kind of skills would be Um, important to teach, and I think in this aspect, um, I thought it is important to help the students build up their resilience, um, adaptability, as well as um, understanding that, you know, whatever skills that you learn in school today um, is is not going to help you through your life, and you need to be able to build um, this ability to uh, learn on a lifelong basis, right, so I think it that really stems from a mindset perspective, right? So being ready to, to take on um, training courses and whatnot, perhaps a year after graduation, right? And, and not to think that what, with your degree, you know, you can continue on for maybe the next three to five years. So I think a lot of it is um, in terms of the mindset. Yeah, and, and I do think that, as, um, as what Prof mentioned, besides the, the hard skills, I think it would be good if um, schools can focus on, on some of these other areas. Okay, great. Yeah, Wenli?
8: Uh Yeah, so I, I do agree on soft skills. It's very important um, because you can never predict what's the next new industry that's rising, right? So, uh, but soft skills, um, hum, uh, people skills and. Knowing how to network and knowing how to, you know, have a very focused understanding of what you want to do, um, build the experience from that. I think that's very important. And not just taking tests and exams. I think being open to new experience and being open to learn is very important, especially when you're in your 20s and you want to explore a career pathway that is the most suitable for you. Yeah. Okay, great. So
7: being agile, basically, in, in your career path is <laughs> very
8: important.
7: Um, one question from the floor over there.
0: I'm from LaSalle College of the Arts. LaSalle College of the Arts being an arts college, many of my peers are graduating into and transitioning into creative industries, which are volatile and subject to change, as we saw during COVID. And further big of context was last year we saw the writer's strike in the USA where writers and actors made use of collective bargaining to seek protections from AI and also further advance their image rights and improve pay structures. So my question is, is an expanded role of the NDUC feasible or even possible to protect gig workers, especially in the creative industries where freelance and gig work makes the bulk of the labor force?
7: Okay, thank you. So, clearly, this question is directed at you, Natasha.
10: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Hi there. Yes, I I do think that um, there is definitely a bigger role that NTUC can play. Uh, And in fact, we do have a unit called the uh, Freelancers Department. Um, So, they have been helped by my uh, colleague Jean. So, we have been doing quite a fair bit in the, the freelancing space. Um, and one of it, I think, one of the things that they are exploring is also in terms of better rep- representation uh, for gig workers. But I think, I mean, since we're on the topic of use, um, I think one of the things that uh, NTUC could perhaps do, together with uh, some of the IHLs, mm-hmm. to better prepare um, some of our uh, future freelancers, for example, um, is to really look at uh, career guidance, right? So perhaps today the the career guidance that's offered to youth is very focused on your nine-to-five roles and whatnot. Mm. But then if a youth does decide to, for example, pursue freelancing in the creative media space, um, he he or she has to better understand uh, perhaps about how the contracts are structured, right? And in the event that they face uh, employment disputes, where is it that they can actually go to for help? Mm. I think these are all things that um, NTUC can do more uh, in terms of, Equipping uh, future freelancers, right? In terms of protecting them, um, helping them understand where they can go to for help if they need to, um, and I think in terms of the uh, creative creative media space, when it, when we talk about. Uh, preventing disputes and whatnot, fundamentally, uh, we do have a creative media and publishing union, right? So if you are a a creative worker and you are employed in a company and you face any issues, uh, do approach the union, right? There's a lot more that um, the union can do if the company is unionized Mm. under under the the current Trade Unions Act and Industrial Relations Act, for for example. Mm. In terms of the recourse that's available, it's definitely uh, much more, Right, so so do approach the union if you need any help. Huh? Yeah, right. Actually, in relation to that, there's a
7: question online. Uh, they asked, um, given the recent incident which a company ignored Uh, the unions in retrenching staff, um, how can NTUC uh, engage better with youths to understand their workplace rights and responsibilities? Mm. It's kind of related to what you said.
10: Yeah, I I think it would be similar to what I shared earlier. Mm. First, I want to acknowledge that I think there's um, a lot more that NTUC can do Mm. to to help youths understand about their employment rights uh, as well as the role of the union in terms of uh, protecting them, right? And I think in, in us going down to the IHLs in the past year, mm-hmm. um, that is really the I think one of the key steps that we are taking to, to um, firstly understand their anxieties, but also in doing so, helping under- helping them understand that look, you know, there is also a union that you can turn to, um, and so in school, for example, when you do encounter any issues, perhaps if your internships and whatnot, you can go to your career uh, guidance office, right? Mm-hmm. But in your first year, in your second year, when you're out of school, who do you turn, Who can you turn to? Um, it is actually the union, right? And uh, apart from the unions, there's also Young NTUC, obviously. So Young NTUC is trying to play that role um, to help to bridge some of this this understanding. Um, and besides that, I think Young NTUC can definitely do more in terms of um, exploring some partnerships with the different IHLs too. Um, you know, helping helping the youth understand. What role can NTUC play beyond protection as well, right? So, for example, in terms of your work prospects, in terms of placements, there's actually a variety of things, right? Yeah. Okay. So, when you say um, can play
7: a larger role, um, does it just mean going down to the universities, polytechnics, and ITs
10: to give talks, or what else can you do? Like, what is that? What more? <laughs> so, well, in in IHLs, um, youths, Start taking on part-time jobs, for example, mm. right? Um, and sometimes they are, uh, when they receive that contract, they don't understand how to interpret. I mean, they, they do not know how to interpret the contract, mm-hmm. right? So these are actually some um, some areas where young NTUC or our unions can actually come in mm. to help them, right? For it could even relate to things like your MC leave entitlement and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I think it's beyond just giving talks, right? It's helping them to understand. Or rather, if they do encounter any issues uh, in their part-time work, etc., they can actually approach the union too. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, We have a question from the floor
7: over there.
2: Hi. My name is Yu Hang and I'm a final year student at Tamase Polytechnic, pursuing a diploma in psychology studies. So my question is more directed at um, Dr. Sam. So um, I understand from your research study that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the usage of generative AI is associated with a reduction of valuation of hard work as mediated by um, reduced uniqueness among youths. So how can this finding be applied such that it is beneficial to help youth to navigate a world where education and workplace are looking to augment generative AI?
9: Okay. Great question. Um, so as a researcher as opposed to a policymaker. Uh, I'm less interested in the intervention and policy that we can use. That's not to say those are not important, but those would be uh, one of my colleagues' um, uh, expertise. Uh, in my research, you're absolutely correct that um, uh, we find this effect among undergraduates, and then we have kind of seen this effect among a secondary school students in two uh, high schools in Singapore as well. So this trend is quite worrying, and uh, as of now, um, we have no solutions. But in my view, research has to be done to look at the causes first before we look at solution intervention. So it's a, it's, a, it's a process, so to speak. Thank you for the question. Yeah. thank you.
7: Um, another question from the floor.
10: Hi, um, I'm Yashen from Dunman High School. So I was reading this CNBC article, which says that uh, work-life balance matters less to those who earn more. And I was just wondering if like, there's higher living costs, would there be a conflict between wanting to hustle and earn more and achieving work-life balance?
7: Thank you. Okay, I think this can be open to all the panelists. Uh, You want to take that again?
9: I just want to give an example. So I, I, there's some research showing that uh, if you feel passionate about your work, you typically um, value work-life balance a bit less. You typically work more and you feel fine fine enjoyment. So as a personal example, uh, when I was about age 24, about 10 years ago, uh, that was at Christmas, December 25th. Uh, I was in Seattle, Washington, I was doing my PhD. I was very happy that morning because uh, I could finally drive to campus and park in front of my office without paying for parking. <laughs> now, that sounds really crazy, but I stepped in the office. Uh, we have a, a shared office with 20 some PhD students. I would say at least half showed up. And those half become, well, five years after uh, they graduated the PhD, myself included, got really good jobs, uh, worked really hard, I think, status. And they never really once complained about work-life balance or imbalance. They have good families, they have good job, good career. So I got a sense that um, um, you're probably right that those individuals who are on a high-paying job probably value this less, but not because they are just workaholic, but simply because they enjoy their work intrinsically a bit more than those on the other end of the spectrum.
7: Okay,
10: thank you. You, At, um, yeah, sure something I, I yes. think it's also recognizing that you know there will be many seasons in life, mm. right? And I think um, one of the things that is on the side of youth is actually time, right? And and so what um, quite quite a number of even my my peers, for example, we do discover that earlier on in our careers we have that much time, right? More time to you know pursue whatever whatever is it that we want and whatnot. Um, so I think when we think about uh, your entire career trajectory from that sense, work-life balance doesn't have to, you know, take place in that specific role or that specific time. You We should really look at it in terms of um, your uh, broader career life, for example. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
8: Yeah. So I think there's also, like, a danger of, like, you know, because, um, for example, a lot of the hard jobs, like, like in the heart, um like nursing and you know all of those uh, elderly care, social work mm. they, they ha- there's a lot of passion, but at the same time you know it, it can run out like that you can get burnt out, you can do all those things, and you can feel like uh, not necessarily like there's no work life balance, but you just feel overworked and burned out so that there's also a danger in that spectrum mm. and um i do and I do agree that in your career is like so long, right? So at which point of time will you be willing to sacrifice uh, work-life balance versus at which point in your life, you know, are you not willing to do it? So it really depends on your own personal priorities at that moment of time, yeah.
7: So the answer is it depends. Depends, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, one question over there, Nassau. Yeah.
9: Hello, my name is Barnabas. I'm a year three computer engineering student from Nian Polytechnic. And I have a question on AI that's similar to the one earlier. On the topic of AI, earlier has shown that AI-assisted work is deemed higher quality than work done without AI. However, there may be an issue where individuals would not be fully credited for their AI-assisted work as it was not strictly based on their ability alone, especially in academic settings. So my question is a two-parter. First, should there be a point where proficiency in using tools like ChatGPT be recognized as a proper skill, much like proficiency in tools like Excel? And how should AI assistance be integrated into academic and professional settings? Yeah, so the first question, uh, definitely answer is yes. We have prom engineer these days, uh, that is still very early on in terms of development of um, AI-related career, so definitely that would be a yes in my opinion. Uh, the second question in terms of how AI should be integrated into higher education, uh, I would say that, um, at NUS, uh, we have this uh, faculty uh, level policy that individual professors can decide how they want to use it, do they allow it, do they not allow it, it's really up to professors. So me personally, I cannot speak on behalf of NUS, but me personally, I really encourage my students uh, to, to use AI to really better the understanding of the topic that I, I have been teaching. And um, so I, I really do hope that more educators, um, perhaps at the secondary level, at the JC level, can also embrace the use of AI education because um, you can reject it now, but in even 24 months, that's just simply not possible. Uh, and American counterparts have been doing that sooner than the Asian counterparts, and I really encourage all of us educators here to really
2: embrace this change.
7: Okay, thank you. Um, one, one more question from the floor then? Yeah, okay.
2: Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Aditya Das. I'm from uh, United World College Dover campus. Um, I want to ask... Um, specifically about professional portfolios, considering that youths do have times, so to speak, um, can they fit in gig work or blue-collar jobs into their professional portfolio, and therefore help build a base or propel them into the workforce to gain better job opportunities in the uh, in in the future post maybe thirty years old, let's say.
10: I think. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the short answer <laughs> to that is yes, but perhaps um, what the youths need help with um, is how to design, you know, that that um, that resume and whatnot, in order to ensure that it's uh, relevant for the the career aspiration that they have. And I think um, earlier on I spoke about mentorship, right, and the, the um, you know guidance from your career officers and whatnot. Um, I would highly encourage um, youths. Uh, if you have not yet you know, embarked on a mentorship, try it. Um, if you are worried in terms of uh, you know, what do I ask the mentor or how do we conduct that relationship, uh, Young NTUC has the resources to, to help you. Um, and I think that would really provide more clarity in terms of which path, you know, what type of job you should really be looking at in order to, to build the resume that you want so that you, know, you can work towards your career goals.
7: Great, thank you so much, Natasha. Anyone else has views on that?
8: No. Uh, I guess even if uh, it doesn't help with your resume, but at least you have this experience that's so different, and it helps to make you grow as a person. You know, and that might eventually help you in your professional life. Yeah. And yeah, so it's not just what how it looks like on your resume. Yeah, but not just how it looks like. The actual
7: qualities that yes. that you, you you have gained from that. Okay. And um, we have two more people there. Yeah. Okay.
2: Hello, my name is Merev Berry, and I'm a student at the United World College of Southeast Asia East Campus, and my question is primarily targeted towards Professor Sam Yam. How much does a postgraduate degree such as an MBA help you in the current labour market, particularly in the finance or business consultancy industries, and is it worth doing it?
9: (laughs) So one disclaimer, my son just applied to UWC. So I'm not sure if you're getting or not, so just one disclaimer, so I'm very fond of UWC students, uh, by the way. Uh, The Dover campus, (laughs) specifically. And now to your question uh, about the value of an MBA. So I teach an MBA program as well, so I'm obviously positively biased. Uh, We see very clearly uh, the statistics pre and post MBA in terms of salary is certainly a a significant jump. Uh, Most MBA students who enter our program typically don't want just that. They, in fact, they want to switch their career. They might be in a career of, of servicing, for example. They want to switch to technology, they want to switch to consulting. That's what an MBA really is for. Uh, so I would say that uh, it's not just in Singapore, globally speaking, especially in the US, so MBA is a US-centric market, with some uh, top two institution in, in, in France, also in, in, in London, uh, same, same thing. Uh, however, I would say that, acknowledging that the MBA market is shrinking a little bit, because uh, young people typically value time this day a lot more than uh, their parents. So uh, there's a really strong proliferation of one-year master's program, uh, very popular starting in Europe, uh, now more popular among Asians, and certainly in the US as well. So long story short, um, MBAs do carry values, but there are a lot of other options out there that are shorter that may be able to fulfill your goal as well.
8: Thank you. Next question. Um, hi, I'm Belle Joel. I'm also from UWCSA Dover Campus, and I would like to ask the panelists, how would the panelists suggest use to find their true area of interest for future careers, and with, where they would truly love to commit time and energy into?
7: Okay, so how do you find your true area of interest? Um, advice to use out there. Maybe you can draw from either personal or professional experiences?
9: So there's some research showing that most people believe that um, the interest would pop up and show up to them. Let's say one day you play the piano, you just enjoy doing it, and you play it forever. Uh, in reality, interests are not really just um, drop on their lap. Really interests are developed, passions are developed. So a lot of people also confuse the idea of talent versus uh, passion. So they believe that if you have passion about certain things, you must be very good at doing that thing. In reality, we ask um, most individuals are they like people who are very good at domain x, y, and Z? they typically develop those interests into their passion as opposed to just say you know i 'm very good at this, and I should be doing this for the rest of my life so that 's according to research. Uh, my personal um, um, uh, story has been fairly similar. I would say that i I was in a different industry before being a professor, and I certainly enjoyed doing this um, a lot more than the other industry. And it wasn't really something that happened just just in a second, it just happened because I explored this occupation, I explored this career with guidance, with mentors, that helped me um, to guide my career trajectories. Thank you. Thank you.
10: Natasha? Um, I would say that, well, the, take your time to, to discover your passions. Um, and what I mean by this is to also really uh, get out of your comfort zone, try and experience new things. And it doesn't matter if you end up realizing that, oh, this is not something I like, right? Because then, you know, you can cross that out and discover what else is there. Um, otherwise, right, the, your worldview would likely be similar, um, and, and you may not know, right, um, what, uh, what kind of passions you could develop. So it's just getting out of your comfort zone and experience as many things as you can while you are young. Hmm.
8: Yeah. So um, I completely agree that what you're talented at might not be what you're passionate at because for from, from me personally, so I have a degree in sociology. So uh, when I first started studying sociology, I, my language skills weren't fantastic. I didn't understand half of what the readings were talking about, you know, we had to read and write a lot. And then, but then because I really enjoyed learning about ideas, so much that I forced myself to sit down and really improve my language skills. And eventually, you know, it, it became the driving force of what my career choices have been. So, um, and I really wanted to impact, I want to create like impact in the world. So that's how I chose my different career paths from, um, I went to the UN, then I went to IPS, then I went to, and now I'm a journalist. So it's kind of like, what do you like? And are you willing to 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 spend time and effort and invest in it? And then Really make it your, your career pathways, yeah.
7: So make what you like into what you're good at. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we have time two minutes for so one last question. Yes.
12: My name is Corinna Lim, and I'm from where? I work with a team of uh, very talented young researchers and uh, people who care about gender equality, social justice. They don't work for the top dollar, but they work for meaning. And increasingly, I find that youth really want meaning and I worked. Mm. So, I mean, I've worked in the space for quite a few years. I do find this generation to want it even more. Mm. Why? Because I think on the internet they can get meaning, whether it's social or that they have a voice. And secondly, they find that they feel powerless as well. In, in the face of climate change, these big, huge things, what can they do? So they really want to find it at their work. So the, I think the, the question for all bosses, for all companies, including myself, and we are experimenting with a few things, is how can we make every job meaningful for that person in that job? You can't control social status and how society looks for it, but certainly you can control how you as a boss, as the company, values a young person's voice and contribution.
7: <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Thank you, Karina. Hear so how, what is it that we can do to make every job meaningful? Yeah.
9: I, I think first you mentioned about inequality and climate change. I think first was to think about the reality there's a really interesting book by a guy named Rosling. He's uh, a Swedish um, public health researcher called Factfulness. Right? The idea is that we're making a lot of progress in equality. We're making a lot of progress through climate change. And yet, most people still don't believe this happening. So I'll give you one example. Uh, climate-related death has decreased by about 90% in the past 50 years. And yet all the time you see only people who are suffering from tsunamis, from earthquake, from natural human disaster, right? So I think first we have to agree on the reality statistically speaking. We're making a lot of progress on a lot of difficult social issues. We have a long way to go, right? But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that humans as a as a as a race, we have done a lot in the past 50 years to address these issues. So I think first we have to be, um, just like I said, being realistic and be more hopeful that what we have done. What we have done is it's very good already, we should still achieve more, as opposed to just learning to be helpless in in in, um, in how we think about the social issues.
10: Okay, thank you. And then maybe Natasha, you had some thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think definitely it would be to articulate the impact that um, the job helps to create, that the company is creating. Mm-hmm. I think very often when a youth, you know, starts in his or her first role, it is Maybe a little bit more challenging to see that, mm-hmm. right? Because they are all uh, they are in a junior position. So I think if if um, you know seniors and the company bosses could take a, a a little more a little more time to help explain that to them, I think it would help. Um, importantly, help to also um, draw relevance in terms of the strengths that they have to this impact, so that they really feel that they are creating a value in the company. I, I think that can help to add to the meaning of the job. Thank you.
8: Wendy. So it's about like, how do you think that um, you are contributing to the team and to society at large. So I feel like every job kind of has its own contributions. And at the same time, you can also be the type of person who don't find meaning in work. You know, maybe work is just money right and then you can find meaning in other areas of work and it, it's, it's just because life is very long and then you have so many components right so maybe work is just one aspect but you can also find meaning if you choose to yeah so that's right that so
7: <laughs> one option is side hustles you can find meaning and side hustles and the other is um basically um you know look at um like like natasha said how do you articulate the meaning of yeah. the contribution so sometimes when you're working in a role you see what it is that's just right in front of you, but you don't see where you fit in the bigger picture. Yeah. So actually, in the larger scheme of things, this is your contribution to overall, so yeah. that can help. Okay, with that, uh, we end the panel. We are a little bit over time. Um, thank you so much uh, for, to the panelists for their wonderful insights. Um, I'm sure all of you uh, have enjoyed the session today. Um, and also, thank you for the questions coming from the floor. Very exciting, we had a long list of questions that we weren't able to address today, but I hope uh,
12: some of the more pressing ones were, uh, were discussed. Thank you so much.